you stand with me as we read the text this morning? It's going to be Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. This will be uh, found on page 498 in your pew Bibles there. And as always, if you need a Bible or want a Bible, please take one from the seat back in front of you as a gift from us. Let's begin reading. Verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he, saw, and he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, as we do each and every week for the gift of the word of God. We thank you that none of these things revealed to us would ever occur to us in our fallen, natural, and sinful state. But Lord, what we have in these pages is the self-revelation of God himself. You have told us who you are and how you deal with men and women like us, how that your heart from the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, was to reconcile us to yourself. And that is what you accomplished in Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand, your own right hand. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for these things. We thank you for these truths affirmed in your word. We thank you for the reliability of your word. We thank you for the preservation of your word. And God, help us to be people who are never found neglecting, ignoring, or taking your word for granted, Lord. But help us to be those who constantly set it before us as the feast that it is, remembering the words of Jesus himself, quoted from Deuteronomy, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If you'll indulge me, I want to make one quick announcement before I get started. Um, and that is this. We, you may have seen in your bulletin that um, we are, are, had planned a discussion group after church today at the park. 
And I don't know if you guys have been aware of this, but it is really, really, really hot out there. And so we are going to just go ahead and pull the plug on that, and we'll keep doing those, and we'll resume them. But um, we do not want to be responsible for any of you dying of heat stroke, so please grant us that grace. Um, so here we are. Can you believe it? 19 months, 61 sermons, and today we complete our journey through Mark's gospel. Can you believe it? How many of you have been here for the whole time? Raise your hand. Okay, quite a few of you. Um, our singular goal, as we decided as, a, as an elder team to, to do this study in Mark, was to reacquaint this congregation with the, the Jesus, with Jesus in his incarnation. We wanted you to know who he was in his earthly life, what he did. We wanted you to know about his life, his teachings, his miracles, all of these things culminating in his substitutionary death and his victorious, triumphant resurrection. And so we learned way back in February of last year that this gospel's focus was singular. It was one thing, and that is the announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of God in the coming of Jesus. If you'll recall with me, we focused a lot on the verse 14 of that first chapter. You'll remember it because we said it over and over again. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And here was what that gospel entailed. And saying, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. How many of you are very aware that that message is still being proclaimed to this day? And, and will be until the end of all time. And the rest of Mark's gospel chronicles how that kingdom was established in fulfillment of many, many Old Testament prophecies, but, but not just in some spiritual sense, in some philosophical or theoretical sense. The kingdom was established within the confines of actual human history. Again, a point we've made over and over again. Jesus's ministry was public. It was on public display for his friends and his enemies both to hear his words, to see his acts, and and nothing was hidden. And his message in the book of Mark was described way back in uh, chapter 1, verse 27, as a new teaching with authority. And, And that teaching was about the nearness that God desired with his humanity, with humanity. And it was, it was illustrated by Jesus in the fact that he laid hands on the sick and that he went close to sinners and told them of God's forgiveness. He, he went close and chastised Israel's leaders for their failure to present God in all his glory to the people they were sent to. And he promised that the old way of doing things was done and he spoke Over and over again, it's affirmed in Mark that he spoke with the authority of God himself. We saw in the book of Mark his humanity clearly displayed. We saw it when he was angry, like in chapter 3, verse 5. We saw it when he was sleepy in chapter 4, verse 38. We saw him hungry in chapter 11, verse 12. We saw him sorrowful in chapter 14, verse 34. We saw him wounded and killed in chapter 15. He was the perfect representative of mankind because though he was fully God, he became 
one of us, the mystery of the ages. But we didn't just see his humanity, did we? We saw his divinity as well. He commanded the weather. He walked on the sea. He multiplied loaves and fishes to feed thousands of people. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He silenced his own persecutors with divine wisdom. He unveiled his heavenly glory before three of his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration and talked to two people who had long since left planet Earth, Moses and Elijah. And most of all, he proved his divinity when, as we read last week, that he rose from the grave. And so, what is my summation of Mark? What do I hope was accomplished in Mark? I I, I hope that you will be absolutely driven, compelled to discover more of Christ by reading the Gospels of Matthew and Luke and John and studying and meditating upon them, considering them deeply. I pray that you'll read the rest of the New Testament for a theological explanation of all that his life, his death, his resurrection means. And that you'll even explore the Old Testament to fully know how all these things that we've read about in Jesus, how a sovereign God had planned them from the very beginning. But we're not done yet. (laughs) We have 12 verses to go. Verse 9 through 20 of uh, chapter 16 here. And as we've opened our Bibles to consider these verses, we're stumbling, even if you didn't know it, on a dilemma that we cannot afford to ignore or pretend that it's not there. See, after verse 8, last week, the end of last week's text, you might have noticed a bracketed note in the ESV Bible, since that's what most of us use, which said, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. You can look in your Bible right there. You can look in the blue Bibles. It's there. That, that, that notation is there. Most other English translations have a similar note, either as a footnote or as a heading before the paragraph or the page. And this note is necessary because... Well, the reason it says most of the original manuscripts because we don't possess any of the or, or early manuscripts because we don't possess any of the original manuscripts of the documents that constitute the, the New Testament. We can't go to any museum and see in Paul's handwriting, say, the book of Ephesians. We don't have any of those. And the original documents that were penned by Paul and Peter and Mark, all of those have long since been lost to time and history. The original manuscripts that made their way to Corinth and Ephesus and Thessalonica and Philippi and Rome, etc., etc., these are called the autographs. Now, all of you are familiar with that word. They're called autographs because they're written by the author's own hand, or in some cases, like with Paul, through a scribe or a very close secretary. And that indicates their originality. This is what Peter wrote. This is what Mark or Luke wrote. And today, think about the word autograph. Today, when you collect autographs, if anybody does that, it's to give some, uh, you know, or prove some provenance relative to a famous or historical person. Nobody wants a fake autograph. Nobody wants to, you know, no one's interested if I say, hey, come over. I've got a fake autograph of Babe Ruth and George Washington. I want you to see it. You'd be like, well, who cares? What does that mean? But... What we do have, so that when you hear that, you could get a little shaken. How do we know what Paul 
meant, what Peter meant, what Mark meant. What you do need to know, a very comforting thought, is that we have literally thousands of handwritten copies. And some of them date back to very, very shortly after the apostolic period in the, first, in the second century and really early. And these are reliable for one reason, because they were meticulously hand-copied. This was way before the invention of the printing press. That wouldn't happen for almost 1,500 years later. So they were hand-copied. And we know that, that that we can rely on them because we have so many, and, and most of them are virtually identical to each other. But you may still be bothered by the fact that we don't have the autographs. It may be like, well, how do we know um, what was really the intention of the original writers? Well, let me steal or borrow. I'll borrow it. I don't think he's going to object. An illustration from R.C. Sproul. Imagine that today, while we're sitting in church, terrorists in Washington, D.C., blow up the Bureau of Weights and Measurements. They just, odd target, I admit, but that's what they pick, and they just blow it off the face of the earth. All the records, all the, anything that that building contains, it's just gone, wiped off the face of the earth. And so, it obliterates all of our records of what a foot or a yard is. Why, I'm asking you congregation, why would that not be a problem for us? Help me out. What, what was that? Yeah. How many of you have a ruler or a yardstick or a measuring tape in your home right now? How many do you think, how many rulers, yardsticks, measuring tapes do you think there are in the city of Lubbock right now? Now imagine that across the entire United States, how many rulers, yardsticks, and measurement, and measuring tapes that we have. It wouldn't be a problem for us because we have so many copies. Since we have so many to compare to each other, I could say, hey, Mike, let me see your ruler. Yours is 12 inches. Mine's 12 inches. Leo, let me see your yardstick. Three feet. Okay, mine's three feet as well. We have so many to compare to each other. Losing the record of somebody's description of what a foot or a yard is wouldn't matter in the least. Now, can I complicate it a little bit for you? Suppose that this terrorist act happened in the 1920s, 100 years ago. And say that someone produces a ruler from the 1950s that they've discovered, and they say, hey, oh my, oh my gosh, look at this. This ruler is only 11 and a half inches, or this ruler is 13 inches. And they postulate, maybe this is the true standard, or this is the true standard. Again, I ask you, why wouldn't that be a problem? Or why would that be a problem? It wouldn't at all, for the same reason. We have millions upon millions upon millions of reliable examples of what a true ruler is. And we can prove that the standard for a ruler is 12 inches, 1 foot, 12 inches. Now, you may think, what does all that have to do with anything? This is the point. This is the case with Mark 16, 9 through 20. The earliest manuscripts across several different languages, not just Greek, or Latin, but across several different languages, do not contain these verses, the earliest manuscripts, although some later ones certainly do. 
In addition to that, some of the earliest church fathers who, con- who commented extensively on the, comment, uh, on, the, on the contents of the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation, right after the age of the apostles, I mean literally within decades of the, of the age of the apostles, don't appear to know that these verses in Mark should exist. Even the style of the Greek found in the earlier portions of Mark is not consistent with the style that we find in these last 12 verses. And the writer of these 12 verses uses words and an authorial style that's clearly inconsistent with the rest of Mark's gospel. So on these bases, we can say with a large degree of certainty that the conclusion of Mark's gospel is a later scribal edition. What do I mean by that? That some scribe, some uh, copyist probably most likely added that at some time, we don't know when that was, later um, in the history of the of the copies that were being circulated of this gospel. And what I mean by that is they're not the original words of the author, and therefore most likely not handed down to him, at least in this form, from the Apostle Peter, as we believe the rest of the content of Mark was. Now, before you grab your rocks and throw them at me and stone me for a heretic, let's talk a little bit more about it, Okay. Um, this creates two unavoidable problems for us, this reality. The first problem has two sides, and it's this. Number one, how did, uh, how and why did these additional verses get into Mark in the first place? And two, does what is written here hold any value to us knowing the fact that this is an addition as we study the book of Mark today? So, the second problem is by far way more complex and potentially troubling. But it's by no means unanswerable. Do we have any reason because of scribal additions like this? And another thing called textual variants. That means in this copy, uh, we have a word that in this copy, it's a, it's a slightly different word. Do those things give us any reason to doubt that the scriptures as we have them are the inspired, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient word of God? And if it does or doesn't, why or why not? Everybody with me so far? Nobody's with me so far? That is the most disturbing moment in preaching in, in 10 years. That was, that was just like, man, everybody's napping right now. These questions matter. So let me wake you up again. These questions matter. Here's why. Because if there is a demonstrable flaw in the word of God, especially those that are the direct words of Christ, then we have legitimate reason to question what we call truth. And we even have a reason to question the foundation of our shared faith. Now is everybody awake? Scary stuff, isn't it? So let's talk about our first concern. How and why did these additional verses get into Mark, if if what I'm saying is true? We can only speculate, but I have wondered, as many scholars have wondered, um, if a well-meaning early copyist was concerned that Mark's original ending was just too abrupt. Let's review it from last week. Verse 8 of the same chapter. And they, meaning the women that were there, went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And they lived happily ever after. It's not really, by our standards, a super satisfying ending, isn't it? So I can imagine that some copyist 
um, most likely wanted to supply the rest of the story that we find in the other Gospels. Because think about it. Think about what we just read. Seized with astonishment. Saying nothing. Afraid. Admittedly, this, of all four Gospels, doesn't mention directly Jesus' appearance to his followers. Confirming what they'd heard. And it seems to focus only on the amazing shock, literally, if we want to say the trauma, experienced by the witnesses of Christ's resurrection, instead of the theological implications or the encouragement that is found in the other Gospels. Throughout Mark, what I want to remind you of, to kind of help you get your mind around this, is throughout Mark we've seen over and over and over again, especially when we've compared his account to Matthew's, Luke's, or John's, that this is Mark's style. This is the way Mark writes. His, his account, like we read in verse 8, is, more, is always more like a newspaper article than it is a thorough biography. He takes a just-the-facts-ma'am approach to sharing with us the gospel, especially when you compare him to Luke's very thorough gospel, very detailed account, and to John's account where he adds a lot of stories that are only supplied in his gospel. But we mustn't miss the point. You mustn't panic because these words may not be in the original. Don't miss the point. Mark's gospel is a complete Gospel. What do I mean by that? He has finished the story. He's reported in the, in the, in the first eight verses about which there is no doubt of his author, uh, authorship. He finished the story. He reports that a heavenly being intercepted the women at the tomb and made the most joyful announcement to them. He has risen. He is not here. And so you could go right there and say the end and you have everything you need to know about Jesus. He is not dead. And that's the point. Mark announces to us in his gospel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what we need to know. So the scribe who added these words made the same mistake that many of the preachers you'll hear today, and sometimes I'm sure even myself, make. What he wanted to do was, he he had an opinion about the text, and he wanted to supply more than the text actually gives us. And when when we're learning how to preach expositionally, we call this going above or below the line. The line is the text of Scripture. And they always teach you in expositional preaching, stay on the line. Don't add, how many, let me let you in on a big secret. I have some great opinions and they're worthless to all of you. No amens on that? Come on. I, I, I thought at least Ginger would give me a booming amen because she has to listen to my opinions all the time. They're worth nothing to you. The, thank you, I appreciate that. The only sustenance that I could ever lay before you comes directly from the words of this living book. That's it. And so the scribe appears to have made the same mistake. He wanted to supply more than the text gives us. Instead of just resting in the sufficiency of the words supplied by Mark and inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, everybody take your Bible, just rip that section out of your Bible. Not so fast. Because the interesting fact is that this edition, and it's pretty clear that it's an edition, contains almost nothing that isn't supplied by the other 
Gospels. In that sense, these words can actually be helpful, not to be regarded as inspired scripture, but as an early form of Bible commentary. Let me give you some examples. Luke also mentions that Mary Magdalene had seven unclean spirits cast from her in chapter 8 of his gospel. In chapter 24, he tells the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that Mark briefly mentions. Matthew, in in chapter 28, gives a much fuller account of Jesus' command to preach the gospel to the whole world, as Luke does again in Acts. The other gospels and Acts detail his ascension into heaven and his sitting at the right hand of God also. The only possibly misleading and problematic portion in this text is when Jesus speaks of picking up serpents and drinking poison. This is a practice that is nowhere else in all of Scripture encouraged. But because this is in Mark 16, we have uh, one that has been adopted by very presumptuous Pentecostal cults, primarily in the Appalachian Mountains. You've seen all the videos where they'll be handling rattlesnakes and drinking strychnine in their services. How many of you would be excited if I told you we're adopting that practice next week based on Mark 16? How many of you would real quickly decide that wasn't the inspired word of God if I said that that, uh, next, next, uh, next week instead of handing you a bulletin, we're handling you a rattlesnake? But even in this instance, even though you might look at that and go, Jesus says you can take up serpents and drink poison, you go, I don't know if that's really something Jesus said. Even in this instance, we have multiple promises of Jesus that he will protect his saints in the New Testament. Wonderful promises. Further than that, we have an account of Mark being, uh, I'm sorry, of Paul rather, being bitten by a deadly viper in Acts. You remember the story? He's making a fire. Some uh, a snake jumps out from the wood, bites him on the hand, and he just literally shakes the snake off into the fire and walks away completely unharmed. And the people who saw it, the pagans who saw that, were completely amazed. And so what is my point? While I can't affirm with any confidence that this is part of the original writing of Mark, there is nothing in this passage that truly contradicts other scripture. Nothing. But our greater problem still persists. If this passage made it into later manuscripts, how can we have any real confidence that what God has preserved in his word, or what God has preserved in his word, is, a, in a, uh, is fully sufficient, is understandable for our use and instruction? And the answer to that question is found in a discipline called textual criticism. And it's just like you sound. You can do it in things other than Scripture where you take an ancient text and you critique it. You you see how much of it is reliable. It's a science whereby we can be convinced that what we have right here is the perfectly preserved Word of God. Now, here's why textual criticism, even though you've maybe never heard that term, it's so important and so wonderful. Because they don't hide their hand, their heads in the sand. They, they don't deny the variants or the additions in the manuscript copies that we have today. So, what does that do with us? We have to examine the nature of these variants. How they got there. And how, if at all, we can discover the true and original 
meaning. Now, there is a lot to this, and I'm going to condense it down to you for two points. Everybody can stay with me just for two points. Everybody okay? I'm going to supply two points to restore or to shore up your assurance in your Bible that you hold in your hands. First question we have to ask. Do we have enough New Testament manuscripts to make us think that at least some of them contain what was originally written, even if others have been changed in some way, either through additions or or variants? And the answer to this question, if you're a reasonable human being, should blow your mind upon further consideration. Let's consider, before we even talk about the Bible, how many copies of other ancient secular histories we have available to us that were written within a few hundred years of the New Testament, so similar in age. So Tacitus, who is known as one of the greatest Roman historians and lived between 56 and 120 A.D., which would be about the time of Christ and the apostles, um, his history is the accepted account of Roman history, Roman Empire history, and life in the Roman Empire to this day. If you go to take a, a, a Roman history class in some university, they are going to quote for you Tacitus. And of his account, we have three copies. We, we don't have the autographs of that either, but we have three copies. And the earliest of our earliest, the earliest copy that we have of Tacitus, um, is, dates from 800 years after his death. Herodotus, who was a Greek historian, fares a little better than Tacitus does. We have 75 copies of his, uh, you know, of, of the, what he left us, and of which the earliest shows up approximately 500 years after his death. Now, on your own time, do some research. This is true of every major historical or secular history that we have of the ancient world. By comparison, we have. 5,700, that's 5,700 Greek manuscripts and fragments of the New Testament. That, that's a pretty impressive from 3 to 75 to 5,700, isn't it? But it doesn't stop there. See, Greek was the language of the world, but Latin was the, was the language of the Roman Empire. From the same period, we have 10,000 Latin copies of the New Testament. In addition to that, we have ten to 15,000 other copies of the New Testament, all these handwritten copies from other languages around the region. The earliest copy that we have is a fragment of, 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 of a portion of the Gospel of John that dates from uh, the year 125 A.D. If you know your, your New Testament history, that's only about 25 years after John's death and only 100 years after the ascension of Christ. The vast wealth and antiquity of our New Testament manuscripts allows us to easily see where there are variations, where there are additions, and we can identify what was not the consensus of the copyists as to the right interpretation because we have so many. Additionally, scholars have, it gets better than this, better than, you know, whatever I said, 30,000 some odd copies of, of ancient texts. 
We have cataloged more than one million, you heard that right, scripture quotations from the church fathers, these guys that, that were in the first generation after the apostles. One million scripture quotations, and it's almost enough to instruct, to reconstruct the entire New Testament just from what they quoted. Even if every New Testament copy was obliterated from the earth, we could still reconstruct it from what the church fathers said. Now, do you have more faith in Tacitus? Do you have more faith in Herodotus? Or do you have more faith in what God has preserved for us in the word of God? When a variant appears, the vast amount of material that we have makes it fairly easy to identify. If we see the same word in a hundred copies and a different word, a variant, in the hundred and first copy, what should we determine is probably what the original meaning is? What well, we saw in the hundred copies, right? And so um, it makes it easy to, to identify and by careful examination discover the original meanings. Now think about what I just said. Imagine that, like Tacitus, we had three copies. Three copies of the New Testament available to us. And let's say that two of them said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And one of them said, for God did not love the world that he gave his only begotten son. Would you have as much confidence with the existence of one third of our existing copies saying something completely different than the other one? Would you have as much confidence as you do right now in the word of God? Well, let me be honest with you, you shouldn't. But because God has preserved his word so well, we have so many copies wherewith to, to, uh, to compare each other. And, and the beauty of that is, is most of them are, are perfectly in alignment in, in, in general. I'll explain that in just a minute. Um, second, not only do we have to uh, understand that about the variants and the additions, but we have to still try to understand what the nature of the variants are. Because the one I just gave example of that clearly contradicts what the what John three sixteen says would be very troubling, obviously. So we have to understand the nature of the variants when we find them in the text. The vast majority of New Testament variants and scribal editions are classified by scholars as insignificant. Let me explain what that means. It means that they're common things found in handwritten documents. Let me ask you a question in the, in the 21st century mode. How many of you have ever texted something to someone really stupid because you were typing so fast you made a really ridiculous uh, you know, error in, in your spelling? Or, or uh, I'm seeing Hope raise Jared's hand enthusiastically. So anybody else? Anybody else bold enough to admit that? If, if we can do it like that with all the digital help we have, how many of you think it would be very difficult to perfectly write thousands of pages, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of words into a document? So, and that's what we find. The vast majority, well over like 97% of the, of the textual variants we found are things like spelling errors or the use of different synonyms. Like there's one that says the gospel of Christ where another text might say the gospel of God. Well, we believe Christ is God and we believe that, um, that God is Christ and so th- that's not a problem. But the other thing that I love the most about these textual variants is in a, in a, in a very few of them you'll find things that are called nonsense readings. And when I heard that, I was like, I don't like that. There's no nonsense in the word of God. Well, there is if you have a major translation error. Can I give you one example? 
An example of a nonsense reading is found in a later copy of Second uh, Thessalonians 2.7. Everybody, I'm not putting it up on the screen. Everybody look up Second Thessalonians 2.7, and I'll do the same thing. Actually, I won't because I didn't bring my glasses up here. So, <laughs> so um, I, I've never done this in public. Gabriel, when you get to Second Thessalonians 2.7, I want you to, to stand up, turn around, and read it very loudly. And we'll show you what the example of a nonsense reading is. 2-7, yeah, stand up, turn around, read it loudly. Is that Second Thessalonians? And 2-7? My my Bible, my, I mean, my note might be an error. That See, what did I say? I'm proving it right here. A copyist error right here. Let's see if I can find it in my blindness. Thank you very much. These are girl glasses. No one laugh. Okay. May have been, let's see, let me go back here. Oh, yep, I did it. First Thessalonians, happens all the time. First Thessalonians 2.7. Sorry, Gabriel, sorry, everybody else. Okay, go ahead. Now, thank you. Um, now, we have a textual uh, nonsense reading available to us in an ancient document that does not say we were gentle among you, has makes no mention of nursing mothers. It says, and I quote, we were horses among you. That's a nonsense reading. Now, how in the world do we go from gentle to horses? Well, the Greek word for, uh, for horses is hippoi, horses. But interestingly enough, the word for gentle is epioi. And on, on paper, they look almost identical. It was a, it was a honest mistake. It was, but when it came into the text, it becomes what becomes very uh, powerful text about being gentle and a nursing mother becomes Mr. Ed. So you know you have that. Um, so comparison to other manuscript copy gives us what the actual meaning was intended. Now. The most important thing to remember, uh, there's, there's so much more to this, but the most important thing to remember is that there is not a single textual variant discovered to date that significantly alters the meaning of any text as we discovered by looking at Mark 16, 9 through 20. Should you rip it out of your Bible? No. It's great commentary on what the rest of the Gospels say. You just have to know the, the, uh, is it inspired? Is it original? And you have to make that decision. In all the New Testament, so you say, well, that's, that's significant, Mark, because there's, that's 12 verses. Well, this might comfort you as well. In the entire New Testament, there are only two significantly sized portions of scripture that have a dubious pedigree of being written by the original authors. One we examine today, uh, Mark 16. And the other one is found in John 7:53 through 8:11. And what I want you to know is neither one of them, both of them are 12 verses by the way, and neither one of them alters the meaning of the text or by extension the message of the gospel in the slightest degree. Now, when we began the series in Mark, 
Pastor Dave will affirm this. Gabriel will affirm this. When we began the series in Mark, I almost immediately began to have some anxiety about how I was going to handle Mark 16, 9 through 20. I had very close pastor friends who counseled me basically just to skip over it with a quick explanation, a couple of sentences of how I felt that these verses were not original and therefore cannot be regarded as inspired. And that's certainly the the conclusion I have to come to as I examine the evidence. And yet, I'm very glad to have looked at this with you this morning. Why? Because as I've said, Christianity does not involve some Da Vinci Code-like conspiracies or obfuscations. It's rather, Christianity involves a thorough, informed, fully illuminated examination of the truth. That's what Christianity is. And so when we have things like this, we just look out, look out for them and we discover why. And thankfully, we, you and I, live in a time not like the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth, or seventh, or eighth century, where a lot of the work has been very rigorously done for us. So if you have a good study Bible, everything I've preached this morning, you can find right there. And that's a great, that's a great time to be alive. Amen? But I had another reason for going through this. Because every few months, a new believer in our church will contact me. This is true. Ginger can verify this. Pastor Dave, I think, can verify this. They'll contact me with grave concerns over a Facebook post or a TikTok video that they they posted or that they have seen posted by some overzealous person who wants to convince them that the Vatican or Washington, D.C., or some other nefarious organization is trying to remove verses from the Bible. And they'll take things like we saw today, the notes that are in the Bible, some, and they'll say, see, they're, you know, they're trying to, to, to take your Bible and, and eliminate it. But without fail, when I look at the post that is in question, it's a person who's reading one of the older translations of the Bible. L- let me just make this note. I absolutely love, not ashamed to say it, the King James Version. It's very thankful for it. Very thankful of how it flooded the gospel of God into the, into the, um, uh, English language you know, many centuries ago. However, the King James Version was written on much later, it was translated rather on much later manuscripts, and that's why we have been handed down things like Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20. There's nothing wrong with your King James. Don't throw it out. It's just you've got to know that, that when the material available to the translators of the King James were much less in number and less in quality than what we have now. And so just know that and, and read that, know that when you read things like that or you read things in your King James and don't find it in ESV, LSB, CSB or whatever. So, um, so they're reading older translations of the Bible and they've never asked a question about why these verses have been removed from someone who can, who can wisely answer their question. And in fact, those, those uh, verses in question are almost always in every edition of the Bible included at least in the footnotes. And these people also know nothing about textual criticism that we talked about today. And when we do that, now this is why this is important enough to put into a sermon. This isn't just a teaching, it's a sermon. Because when we do that, when we get in a sheer panic about somebody removing scriptures from the Bible, uh, on, uh, based on no real facts, we're not just doubting a translation team, but we're doubting God himself. Let me explain. 
We're doubting God himself because we vainly imagine that he has failed to preserve his word for all believers in every generation, even though he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Don't fall into that trap. While it's certainly true that some translations are clearly superior to others, even uh, for the large part, with a couple of exceptions, the worst of our English translations are still sufficient. God has not left us without the life-giving spiritual sustenance that only his perfectly preserved, fully authoritative, infallible, inerrant, and fully sufficient word of God can provide. So take this book, even knowing what you know about Mark 16, 9 through 20, take this book and read it confidently. Read it to your children. Read it with your spouse. Memorize it. For all, you know, by by all means, believe it. Cherish it. Defend it. And live by it. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, Peter writes for us that you have given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And supremely, that refers to Jesus and his sacrifice. But in another degree, God, it it points to your word and the sufficiency of your word that you've given us for life and for godliness. And so, the Lord, as many of us, sometimes we're just indifferent to your word. Sometimes we just don't have the, the capacity or the will to even consider the things like we've considered today. But God, help us to love your word, to defend your word, to rely on your word. Help us, Lord. Help us to treasure your word. Help us to look at your word as though it is our life because it is. Everything else is just opinion. Everything else is just perspective based on experience. But only you know everything, God. And only you know what we need to hear and what we need to know and what we need to have. And for that, Lord, we love you. We worship you. We adore you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask our uh, communion helpers to come forward and uh, get ready to assist us with communion. Um, What a great way. uh, We do this every week. And yet there are times when it is like uh, very prominently um, significant in my mind. This is one of those times. Having spent the last year and a half just reviewing the truths of Christ's life and just how they all bore fruit in his death and resurrection, I am gloriously anticipating sharing this supper with you to share it and remember the the death and the, the sanctifying, redemptive power of Christ's death and, and, and more than that, the conquering, victorious, triumphant resurrection of him from the dead. 
I am anxiously um, awaiting the next few minutes where the Holy Spirit will, by a, a spiritual action, will connect us to that risen body of Christ. And we will have fellowship with him. We will have communion with him. And we will find our satisfaction in, in our connection and our union with him this morning. Those words may mean nothing to you if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are wavering between, as the Old Testament prophet Elijah said, two opinions. Is this stuff real? Is it not? Is, 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 does Jesus even know me or care about me? Does he even live? If you're, if you're not, haven't settled those questions in your mind, I want you to know, first and foremost, we're praying for you. We want you to discover the joy of knowing Jesus. Second of all, I want you to know that if you want to talk about those things, you can find myself, Pastor David, Gabriel, and we would love to have that conversation. We want you to have full assurance of your faith and full assurance of what Christ has done for you. For the rest of you, um, I want to just joyfully invite you forward to come receive these elements and then take them back to your seat, and we'll share them together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writes, In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Lord, we thank you for the record of your life, the record of your ministry, your miracles, your teaching, your pronouncement of the coming of the kingdom of God. And we thank you that we have been invited to enter that kingdom by faith and through repentance. And Lord, we thank you that now we rest in you, awaiting the glory that is to come as our sanctification progresses and as this life ends and we enter heaven to be with you. As you one day return and make all things new in the created order. So we thank you for that. Thank you, Lord. Let us live worthy of the gospel that we've received over the last year and a half. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to read this benediction from the book of Psalms, chapter 12, to you. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.